But this morning in chapel, we're in the book of Ephesians. And as you know, I am just slowly going through the book of Ephesians during uh, chapel times in which I preach. I'm excited about this book and what the Lord says to us. Now today, we're in Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 11 through 22. And I'd like for us to think about the subject, a church united. A church united. Now let's read this text. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. And the first word is, therefore. And as you've been learning here at Fruitland Baptist Bible College, whenever you see the word therefore, you always ask what it's there for. Amen? You're learning that, right? And so in this case, the word therefore points back to everything that Paul has been saying to us in the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2 about how we were dead in trespasses and sins. We've been made alive in Christ. We've been raised up together to sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, and all this happened not because of our effort, but it happened because of the grace of God. Aren't you thankful for his grace? So Paul, in his writing, reminds us of those things by saying, therefore. So, verse 11, therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together, for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Will you join me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great passage of Scripture. Father, my prayer is that you will speak to us today a word that we cannot ignore. I pray, Father, that 
none of us would walk out of this chapel this morning saying, so what? I pray, Heavenly Father, that your word will be quick and sharp and more powerful than a two-edged sword. I pray that it would accomplish its intended purpose in our lives and that we will be transformed by what your word says to us and what your Holy Spirit does in us today. And for that reason, Lord, we acknowledge our total dependence upon you and I pray for an anointing upon me as a messenger and I pray for your anointing also to be upon every listener today that we will truly hear from you and take action upon it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. When you think of a church, what images come to mind? What should a church look like? Should it be very elaborate and ornate? Or should it be rather plain and ordinary? We see a lot of those kind of churches too, don't we? Should the church be large? as with a mega church, or should a church be small? Well, according to the Bible, here's what the church ought to look like. That's what the church ought to look like. Because, ladies and gentlemen, in the Bible, the church is not identified by its steeple. It's identified by its people, by you, by me, in the family of God. Verse 22 of our text indicates that we are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And the ultimate result of God's building the church and what the redeemed look like is found in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Listen to these verses. After these things I looked... And behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So I ask you this question. If that's what the church is going to look like in heaven, why doesn't the church look more that way here? Well, there are various explanations that I've heard people offer. And one of them is that our fallen human nature is prone to emphasize our differences more than our similarities. Bishop John Reed tells about driving a school bus in Australia that carried whites and aborigines. He was tired of all the squabbling that he heard between the two groups on the school bus every day. And so one day, far out in the country, he pulled the bus over to the side of the road, he turned the motor off, and he walked back to the bus and he said to all the white boys who were on the bus, He said, what color are you? And they said, white. He said, no, you're not. From now on, you're green. Everybody that rides this bus is green. 
And then he went to the aborigines. And he said, what color are you? And they said, black. He said, no, you're not. You're green. From now on, everybody that rides this bus is green. There's only one kind of person on this school bus, green people. He went back to the driver's seat, started the bus, and went on down the road, and everything was fine for about two miles. And then one of the boys in the back of the bus spoke up, and he said, all right, light green on this side, dark green on that side. We have an innate ability, it seems, to recognize our differences more than our similarities. But in this passage of Scripture that is before us today, the Apostle Paul focuses upon unity in the church and he emphasizes what we have in common with all other believers. You see, God is not interested in pulling people apart. God's interested in bringing people together. And we see in Revelation how he's going to do that one day before the throne of God. But we don't have to wait to then to get together. We're together in the family of God. And God is interested in producing a group of people in his forever family who will worship him here and will one day worship him before his heavenly throne. From our text this morning, I want to share with you three observations about a church united. First of all, the first observation about our unity. Our unity is experienced in the provision of the cross. Okay, Our unity is experienced in the provision of the cross. Verse 11 begins with, Therefore, remember... Paul is trying to get all of us who are Christians to remember what it was like. When we were lost, the longer you've been saved, the harder it may be to remember what your life was like before you met the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about the desperate situation that we were in before we ever came to know the Lord. Paul reminds his Gentile readers about how bad that things really were when they were lost, their deficiencies are marked in three pairs of statements that occur in verses 11 and 12. And to just summarize it, I'll do it like this. Physically, they lacked the ancient sign of the covenant. Also, Gentiles, politically, they had no part in Israel's national or religious life. But then to make bad matters worse, spiritually, Right there it is at the end of verse 12. Spiritually, they had no hope and were without God in the world. Folks, that is a terrible place to be, isn't it? And sometimes we forget what it was like when we were there, when we were without God, when we had no hope in this world? Do you remember what it was like to be lost and how that things just had a way of going from bad to worse? We're kind of like the man who escaped from jail down in Florida. This is a true story. This man escaped from jail and he was on the run from the law. And he ran through the Everglades and he hid among the trees. 
but he could hear the, the sounds of the hounds that were chasing him in the distance. And so making his way through the darkness, feeling his way around, he climbed over, uh, he came to a large fence, and the fence had razor wire on the top of it, and he climbed up over that fence, cutting and scraping himself in the process. Shortly after climbing over the fence, lights came on and sirens sounded and the man was arrested by prison guards. You know what happened? He'd escaped from jail and had broken into a maximum security prison. Folks, that's what it's like to try to save yourself by human effort. Things just go from bad to worse. Without the Lord Jesus Christ, we're doomed. We're in trouble. We have no hope. We're without God in a lost world. Oh, what a terrible situation. But praise God, that's where Jesus steps in. <laughs> and where Jesus steps in, he has a way of changing the picture, doesn't he? And so look at verse 13. It says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. <laughs> when I read that verse, I want to shout. I thank God for what that means, for the provision of the cross. We were far off and we've been brought near by the blood of Christ, the provision of the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16, the provision of the cross. Have you ever thought about the two sides of John 3.16? What comes before John 3.16? What comes after John 3.16? On the front side of John 3.16... You have a man by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a respectable man. Nicodemus was a religious man. Nicodemus had religion, but he didn't have a redeemer. And so Jesus told him, you've got to be born again to enter the family of God. But on the other side of John 3.16, you have the Samaritan woman who is drawing water from the well. This woman is anything but respectable. She's not a religious woman. Uh, this woman has been married five times, and the woman, uh, uh, the man, uh, could be a woman today, but, but in the Scripture, the man that she was now living with uh, was not her husband. And Jesus recognized that. He saw her spiritual thirst. And Jesus invited her to drink from the well of living water. Both of those two, those people, very different from one another. Nicodemus, nothing like the woman at the well. The woman at the well, nothing like Nicodemus. And both have access to Christ through the cross. And John 3.16 is stuck right in the middle of those two to show the provision of the cross that is available to everyone. Take a moment and just look around this room. You'll see some differences here. But take another moment 
and look outside of this room, and wow, the differences are all the more apparent. But the good news of the gospel is this. The provision of a cross is available to every person on this planet. 2 Peter 3.9 says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Several years ago, and Dr. Roberts will remember this, there was a song that was very popular in many churches called The Ground is Level. I love the chorus of that song that says, The ground is level at the foot of the cross. No man stands higher than I. I can call on Jesus' name, and a king can do the same. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. As different as we may be, our unity is experienced in the provision of the cross. Paul wants us to remember that. But then secondly, the second observation in our text about unity is that our unity is established in the reconciliation of Christ. Now, to reconcile means to bring together again. And in verses 14 through 18, we see the barriers that separated people from one another and from God. Verse 14 speaks of how Christ has broken down the middle wall of separation. Now, this is a reference to a five-foot-high barrier that separated the court of the Gentiles from the rest of the temple. Signs were posted there in that place that warned Gentiles from going any further. In fact, archaeologists have found fragments, and this is an example of one of those fragments. It's on, there it is, on the, on the screen. And written in both Latin and Greek, inscribed there on this warning sign are these words. If you wonder what that says, the next slide is going to show you. Here's what it says in English. No foreigner is to go beyond the balustrade and the plaza of the temple zone. Whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death, which will follow. That's a pretty serious no trespassing sign, isn't it? That's a pretty serious keep out sign to the Gentiles. But even in the Jewish areas of the temple, there were further barriers of separation. The Jewish women were separated from the Jewish men. And then even the Jewish men, they were separated from the place where the priest could go in the temple. And then among the priests, there was only one priest who could go into the Holy of Holies once a year to offer atonement for the sins of the people. And there on the Holy of Holies was a thick curtain, a long thick curtain that separated the people from God. So in the temple, it seemed like everywhere you turned, everywhere you looked, there were barriers, there were signs, there were things that were saying to people, you don't belong here. Man was powerless. 
us to do anything to remove those barriers of separation. But praise God, that's where Jesus steps in the picture again. So let's look at it. In verses 14 through 18, just look at this again in the text. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of the commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Oh, this passage is making it clear making it clear to us that the result of all that Christ has done, there's, there's no difference between Jew, Gentile, male, female, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, all who come through Christ have access to the Father. That word access in, in the Greek is an interesting word because it contains the imagery of a court official who escorts visitors into the king's presence. One day, a little boy named Willie stood wistfully at the gates of Buckingham Palace. He wanted to go in and see the king, but between him and the king, there were iron gates, there were, was rigid protocol. There were armed soldiers and watchful police. What Willie wanted and his desire to see the king was totally out of the question. A policeman who was ordering the lad to leave suddenly stiffened and sprang to attention as a well-dressed, confident man approached. An abrupt nod from this man, and all of a sudden the police officer and the guards opened up the door to the palace, and the man said to young Willie, Come with me, Sonny. And he took the little boy by the hand, and he says, We're going in to see the king. Well, into that palace they went. Inside of that palace there were 40 housemaids, there were 50 men servants. One man, his job, all he did was to wind clocks all day long. That's what his job was. And so they go into this vast palace of 600 rooms. Willie and the man walked on and on up the north wing, around the stairs, along endless passages to the king's corridor on the main floor and then into the main suite. The man seemed to know his way around and he chatted about the different rooms as they passed by. Finally, they arrived in the king's presence and the man spoke. Now listen to what he said. The man spoke and he said, Hello, Father. There's a little boy here named Willie that wants to meet you. 
Meet my friend Willie. Willie, this is the king. You see what had happened there at the gate is that that little boy had taken hold of the hand of Edward, Prince of Wales, the king's son. And through him, Willie gained access to the king. We too, ladies and gentlemen, have taken hold of the hand of the king's son. And it's a nail-pierced hand. And Jesus Christ is able to escort us into the presence of God. We have access through Jesus Christ by one spirit to the Father. And because of that, because of that, what difference should that make? How should we live? Well, number one, we should demonstrate the marks of reconciliation. The marks of reconciliation. We should demonstrate those. And, and in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, it talks about that. It says, And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. The marks of reconciliation are being holy and blameless in the sight of the Lord. But then secondly, in application, we are to demonstrate the ministry of reconciliation. Demonstrate the ministry of reconciliation. Now Paul also talked about that in 2 Corinthians 5, beginning at verse 18. He says, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Very simply, in application, we are to act like people who've been ushered into the king's presence and we're to help usher other people into the king's presence. You see, our unity is established in the reconciliation of Christ. But there's a third observation in our text that I'll move through quickly. Number three, our unity is expressed in the construction of the church. Now, God has literally constructed the church out of human building blocks. You and me and the saints of God who have gone before us. Look at verses 19 through 21 of our text again. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. We are stones built upon the foundation 
laid by the apostles and prophets, and Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Now, only God would choose to build a church like that. Only God would do it that way. When man builds a church, we use brick and mortar and wood and nails. We do all these kind of things when we build a church, but when God builds a church, He uses the materials that are sitting right out here in front of me this morning. He uses living human beings as stones who are constructed together, who are placed together in the church. Ladies and gentlemen, that's why I showed those slides in the beginning. All those pictures of church buildings, that's not really the church. It's the people. We're the church. We are the people of God. In his Ephesians commentary, James Montgomery Boyce makes several observations about how we as living stones are placed in the church. I want to just go through some of those very quickly. Number one, the stones placed into this great structure are chosen and shaped for their position by God. In other words, it's his temple. He's the architect. It's not for us to determine how we're to fit in and where and how. Number two, the stones are placed in the position in relationship to Jesus Christ. In other words, they're attached to him, and if they're not, they're not part of his building. Number three, the stones are of different shapes and sizes, perhaps even of different material, and they are employed for different functions. Some serve in one way, serve some in another way, according to their gifts. Number four, the stones are linked to one another. From where they're placed, they cannot always see this, but the stones, uh, they can't see other stones, but they are interlocked with them. They are a part of the same building. Number five, the stones of the temple are chosen, shaped, and placed not to draw attention to themselves, but to contribute to a great building in which God alone dwells. And then number six, the placing of each stone is only part of a long work begun thousands of years in the past that will continue until the end of the age when the Lord returns. You talk about being united. You talk about being inseparable. You talk about being tied together. What better illustration is there of that than being the very building blocks that the church is made of. When we understand this, I think it will have a huge impact on how much we value one another in the family of God. I believe it will make a difference in how we relate to one another. I believe it will make a difference in how we treat one another when we focus less on our differences, and focus more on that which brings us together. Not long ago, one of our beloved professors here at Fruitland, Dr. Thad Dowdle, went to be with the Lord. At his funeral, one of the speakers, who's a former student, a graduate here at Fruitland, one of the speakers shared an experience that he had with Dr. Dowdle 
on one occasion when he asked Dr. Dowdle to give his interpretation of a very difficult passage of Scripture. And there are some difficult passages in the Bible, aren't there? And this uh, student chose one of those that he was struggling with, and he asked Dr. Dowdle, what is your interpretation? Well, Dr. Dowdle took some time. He explained it, his interpretation of the passage, to which the student replied and said, Dr. Dowdle, I believe I hold to a different interpretation of that passage than you do. He said that Dr. Dowdle looked at him eye to eye, extended his arm, stuck out his hand, and said, My brother, can we still enjoy sweet fellowship together at the foot of the cross? You see, we have a way of finding the things we disagree on instead of the things that we do agree on. We're stones in God's building. It makes a difference how we see other people when we realize that. So let's not let small, tertiary, insignificant matters break our fellowship. Verse 22 says, In whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. God's abode is not in the Jerusalem temple. God's abode is in His people. It's in us. And the best advertisement for your church, it's not the sign out in front of it. The best advertisement is you. The best advertisement is Christ living in you. Do you remember the children's story about the three little pigs? One of the first children's stories I ever remember hearing. And you know the story about this, this first pig that built his house out of straw. And the big bad wolf came along. We got a picture of him here too coming up. Now this bag, big, bag, big, bag, big wolf, <laughs> this big bad wolf, he re, he re, even as a child he reminded me of the devil. And he still does, always trying to blow stuff down, full of hot air, you know, always trying to destroy things. And so the big bad wolf comes by the house made of straw and he huffs and he puffs and he blows the house down with no trouble. The second pig built his house out of sticks and the big bad wolf blows it down easily too. But the third house, built by a smarter pig, built it out of bricks and the big bad wolf, no matter how hard he tried, could not blow that house down. Now listen, ladies and gentlemen, it's not a big bad wolf that we face. It's a roaring lion by the name of Satan. And he wants to destroy the church. He wants to bring the church down. And the way that he endeavors to do that is by destroying the unity in the church. But the next time Satan comes along and he tries to destroy your unity, I want you to remember three truths. Our unity, it's experienced in the provision of the cross. Our unity is established in the reconciliation of Christ. And number three, our unity is expressed in the construction of the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to take this word, put it into our lives, and live it out. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.